Bookstack with Richard Aldous. Welcome back to the second season of the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events. Coming up on the show today, Toby Harnden, a former foreign correspondent for the London Sunday Times and the Daily Telegraph, a winner of the Orwell Prize and author of the new book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Toby, welcome to Bookstack. Hi, Richard. Uh, thanks very much. It's great to be here. So congratulations uh, on the book. The context, of course, is 9-11. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary. I mean, before we discuss the book, what are your own memories of that day? Well, like everyone else, um, I think particularly people in the United States, uh, you know, it's sort of seared into my consciousness. Um, So I was just walking, I was working for the Daily Telegraph at the time as the Washington bureau chief. And I was just walking into the office um, and, you know, we had TVs there and a, what see, there were news reports of a small plane having flown into the World Trade Center. And I just sort of thought, hmm, that's that's a bit weird. Um, didn't think too much more of it. <clears throat> and I had my sort of plan for the day, which involved going to um, cover Laura Bush, then First Lady, um, testifying before senator ted kennedy's uh, senate education committee on capitol hill and so i was sort of just you know getting things together for that and coverage on the news you know i had cnn on live and um and i you know i was watching and then you know i saw uh, an airliner uh, fly into the second uh, world trade center tower and immediately like so you know so many people <clears throat> I, I sort of realized that this was an enormous story an enormous tragedy and then very shortly afterwards it must be it's two planes it must be a terrorist attack and so then i had all all these sort of you know swirling thoughts in my mind you know this is the biggest story of my life i need to perform and i'm working on you know uk deadlines which means you know 1 p.m is 6 p.m and so i need to uh, get get working what else is going on is there going to be another attack is there going to be an attack on central washington could i get killed oh i haven't got time to think about that um you know is there anybody i know that's got killed um all these sort of things then they try to evacuate the building well they did evacuate the building and we're like no <laughs> we're not leaving um and so i just sort of locked the we, we locked the doors and sort of of the outer office and then just sort of hid in our offices, um, individual offices, and just worked because there's no way we were going to leave that building, you know, with that, with that sort of story going on. And then the Pentagon got hit. There was reports of a, an explosion at the, at the State Department. And so it was just an incredible day. And that evening, I, I think about eight o'clock in the evenings, so I've been in the office for about 12 hours. And I, you know, without eating or anything, just, just working and producing all this copy. Um, and trying to sort of, you know, I remember I'm just trying to, you know, it's another plane in the sky, which was Flight, ni- flight, flight 93. Um, and across the road, went to get a hamburger and then flashed on the screen was a picture of Barbara Olson, um, who's the wife of Ted Olson, who was then Bush's Solicitor General. And I knew her a bit. And actually, she'd been very kind to me sort of fairly recently. 
um and she was on um i think it was flight 77 um or maybe it was flight 175 anyway the plane i think it was the it was the flight that that crashed into the pentagon yeah the plane that hit the pentagon and so then you know another sort of you know smack in the face of reality hit me that you know i I knew one of the victims um so yeah how how do you how do you keep your head in circumstances like that where you're overwhelmed by revulsion as you say there are uh, acquaintances that you know who've who've been killed in the attack and yet as you said there there are deadlines you you have to maintain your professionalism how on earth do you balance those two in in a the stark reality of a situation like 911 it's funny i mean i don't know i don't think i find it that difficult um that I mean, a newspaper deadline um, is so, like, immovable. Well, you can move them a bit. You can move them for 30 minutes or 45 minutes if you really want to push the envelope. But it's just sort of, it just has to be done. And um, I think I'm quite, I can be quite tunnel visioned when I need to be, um, which is useful. So I tend not to uh, panic. I mean, if I have a problem, it's sort of, that I think things are going to be fine. So in sort of dangerous situations, <laughs> I remember in Iraq, um, there was sort of gunfire ahead of us. And I was with a Guardian reporter and we'd just been playing squash. I mean, this was, it, which was a crazy thing to do anyway, because it meant we were going in and out of this university with sort of an hour, you know, an hour there. And, we, and it was 2004 and we could easily have been abducted. But anyway, and as we were driving out, there was this gunfire and... The other guy was like, "Shit, there's, you know, there's, gun, you know, there's gunfire." And I was like, "No, no, no, it's it's fire. It must be. It's just just going to be fireworks." <laughs> and then and then we kept on driving, and sure enough, it was celebratory fire. But you know, there's all these guys with AK-47s, but you know, firing in the air. And afterwards, I thought mm, maybe I should have actually processed that it was gunfire rather than trying to filter it out and and pretend that it was all right. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, when. When something happens, you know, I just feel that panic is the least useful uh, reaction and you just need to focus on what you need to do and and, and do it. And so that, you know, that's what I've tended to do in in situations. So on that day, nearly 3,000 people uh, were killed. The American response was the war on terrorism and immediate war in Afghanistan. It's interesting because until very recently, it was often described as the as a forgotten war. Um, of course, no longer everyone is talking about it now with the with the uh, withdrawal. Um, why why do you think that? Before we come on to talk about the CIA and Team Alpha, why why did that war happen? And why did it become a forgotten war? Well, the the reason why the war happened, uh, which I actually have seen sort of um, forgotten or omitted from sort of some of the media coverage in the past few weeks, is 9-11. I mean, because, uh, you know, we knew that day, certainly in the CIA, and I think even in the sort of media, um, that it was, Al- it was Al-Qaeda and it was Osama bin Laden and he was um, in... Afghanistan, and it turned out that all 19 of the hijackers had spent some time in Afghanistan. Many of them had been to Al Qaeda training camps there, and so it was plotted um, from Afghanistan. And so uh, it was a very sort of pure and simple mission in a way. And it was, I mean, I think of all the wars sort of in modern history, it had more legitimacy and 
a widespread support than any other. So, you know, the United Nations supported use of military force. NATO invoked Article 5. Um, there was military authorization from Congress with a single um, member of the House voting against military force. And, and the country was, you know, united in a way that it hasn't been since. And, um, you know, part of the book is that that early mission was a sort of a light footprint. Um, it was advising um, the Afghans sort of in the wings, and it was hundreds of Americans rather than, you know, the 100,000 plus that we got around about 2011. So the mission changed very early on um, into late 2001, just after, just as Team Alpha were leaving. Um, and there was, the Pentagon blocked any possibility of a deal between Hamid Karzai, the new president, um, and the new Afghan government and remnants of the defeated Taliban. And so as we all you know, know now, you know, we've, we moved into a sort of nation building phase, trying to um, create a centralized democracy. We had, I mean, I don't believe there's an Afghanistan invasion really until 2002. That's when the conventional troops started coming in. Bases, I mean, it, 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 it is it, it is really interesting because one of the, the key elements of the book is that you show how in 2001, really the CIA are the only ones who have some sense of what's going on in Afghanistan, who really know Afghanistan. They've already been helping Afghan resistance. And it's quite clear that the Pentagon, in contrast, the Department of Defense, had no plan whatsoever for Afghanistan. I know. I mean, it's really surprising because, you know, the Pentagon people make jokes about, you know, they have plans for everything, including sort of invading Canada. Um, but there was, you know, CENTCOM under General Tommy Franks to uh, the extreme annoyance and frustration of, of Donald Rumsfeld, then De Defense Secretary, there was there was no plan. And yes, absolutely. I mean, you're right. This, the, I mean, America has sort of turned its back on Afghanistan in 1989, when the um, when the Russians left, because it was sort of viewed as a, a sort of a proxy war with the Soviets, and the CIA and U.S. government had, had supported the Mujahideen against the Soviets throughout the 1980s. But there was a small small cohort within the CIA. Um, there was Alex Station, the Bin Laden unit, and then there was the Counterterrorism Center, headed up by Kofi Black. Uh, who were very much looking at uh, Al Qaeda uh, and Bin Laden and and sounding the alarm. And of course, we had uh, Al Qaeda attacks on American embassies in Africa in 1998. We had the attack on the, the USS Cole uh, in Yemen in December 2000. And so, parts of the U.S. government, in particular the CIA, particularly the Counterterrorism Center, were you know sort of screaming at the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration that that we're going to we're going to get attacked. During that late 90s period, um, 2000 into 2001, there were CIA teams, codenamed Jawbreaker, going into the Panjshir Valley and providing support for Ahmed Shah Massoud, who of course was assassinated on September the 9th, two days before 9-11. So, and there was, a, there was a thing called the Blue Sky Plan, which the um, CIA had drawn up. Um, now, this wasn't going to happen before 9-11, there just wasn't the political will from the Clinton or the Bush administrations. But it did mean that once 9-11 had happened and sort of the, you know, the metaphorical gloves were off, um, 
the CIA had a sort of a, a plan, which was really Team Alpha and other teams, you know, going in there uh, alongside Green Berets and working with the Afghan resistance. I mean, it's quite interesting because, I mean, George Tennant, the the head of the CIA, he was the only Clinton cabinet member who was kept on by Bush. He's he's had a bit of a, a rough ride in, in terms of his reputation. Uh, you seem to be implying that actually the CIA was in, in quite good shape in his hands when 9-11 hit. Well, I mean, you have, of course, a whole set. I mean, slam dunk will be written on. George Tenet's, you know, tombstone, or certainly the first line of his obituary, and, and he, I know that he sort of rused the day, and I know that he actually feels he was sort of set up that 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 comment was in a slightly different context, the way it was p- portrayed, and that it was, you know, it was sort of brief to Bob Woodward for, um, I think his Bush at War book, and so you know, Tenet certainly had a rough ride um, in sort of uh, recent history. Of course, you have the, the separate. Um, uh, issue sort of on 9-11 and, and afterwards, which was, you know, what did they know and when did they know it, the famous one. Should they, and should they have seen it coming? Yeah, I mean, connecting the dots and, you know, and, you know, there were indications that some of the hijackers had been tracked in Malaysia and it was it was known within the US government um, that they were in the, 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 that they were in the country. And so, you know, there was all that and, um, you know, I mean, it's like the old sort of IRA thing, you know, they only need to be lucky once, you know, you can stop everything, but if one attack gets through, but, um, but I think in terms of um, being uh, aware of the Al Qaeda threat and, t- and taking it seriously and having not only a plan, but really a very sort of determined intention to go after Al Qaeda. Um, I think the CIA was, was in pretty good shape. Um, on that front and and that and really um, the story that unfolds in first casualty is um, is sort of testament to that. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the stories on the ground in Afghanistan, but but there is also a lot of this fascinating stuff in the book about the the kind of internecine war often between the CIA and the Pentagon, uh, often involving the character that you mentioned before, Kofa Black, the director of the Counterterrorism Center. Uh, there's one great moment in the book where uh, he he becomes furious with Paul Wolfowitz, who suggests that they should already be thinking about Iraq, and and he says this in a meeting with the president. It has nothing to do with this, uh, says Black. So that kind of sense of strategic conflict, uh, difference between agencies, not quite sure exactly what the mission is, honing in on on the particular uh, enemy, that's confused right from the very beginning, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So that meeting was um, at Camp David on September the 15th. So, you know, 9-11 was a Tuesday and September the 15th was a Saturday. And I remember, you know, talking to Kofa Black about this and he, and he said, my brain was screaming, you know, he was he- hearing this. And this was not a guy who, um, you know, had any brief for Saddam Hussein or was any kind of, you know, um, you know, left leaning pacifist. I mean, this was a guy who talked about, you know, he wanted to see flies crawling across their eyeballs and um, bin Laden's, you know, head on a pike and packed in dry ice. So, you know, so this is a pretty sort of... Uh, fearsome sort of character but um but yeah i mean he you know he felt that he had to sort of fight off um the sort of people who wanted to broaden this out into well i mean it was called early on a global war on terror but you know he wanted to focus um 
on al-Qaeda and specifically on bin Laden and the safe haven they had in Afghanistan. I mean, it, it seems to me that the key moment in the book comes uh, kind of about two thirds of the way through when uh, the Taliban government falls very quickly. The CIA and Green Berets have been involved in this. And, and, and you say in the book that, uh, that the question of what next then comes up. And you write that instead of fostering an Afghan solution, the United States switched to imposing an American one. There'd been no U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, but one was about to begin as the NATO International Security Assistance Force was established in Kabul and huge American bases built at Bagram and Kandahar. To even moderate Afghans, this looked like a foreign occupation, you say, and nationalist backlash was inevitable. Explain why this is the key turning point in the story. So, I mean, yes. So the so the book is the story of these eight men in in Team Alpha. You know, four of them were paramilitaries, two of them were case officers. You know, the chief, uh, uh, J.R. Seeger, was a diary speaker who'd been at Islamabad Station in the late 1980s, working with the Mujahideen against the America against the uh, Russians. Um, David Tyson was the other case officer. He was a linguist, uh, Uzbek speaker. A form, his nickname was the professor, former academic, um, who'd uh, you know been uh, a PhD student at Indiana University on Central Asian studies, and so this team was uh, they were um, they had a lot a lot of regional expertise. Um, J. R. Seeger was an expert on Afghan tribes. Um, Tyson had flown in and out of the Panjshir Valley. Um, I mean, they were an eclectic, sort of clever bunch of people who sort of worked with ambiguity and nuance and realized that, you know, Afghanistan was a very, very different country. And the sort of psyche of the Afghan was different from um, that of an American and Westerner. And that Afghanistan was sort of a collection of ethnicities and tribes rather than sort of what we would define as a nation. So they... They understood all that. And that's kind of the sort of thread that runs through these early weeks. And they achieved um, pretty rapid success, almost as rapid as the collapse of you know, the Ghani Afghan government in 2021. It happened very, very quickly. And I think the sort of the turning point, I mean, it's one of the tragedies and ironies of history. I think what happened was that they were so successful, the CIA-led mission across Afghanistan with 10 CIA teams and Green Beret teams on the ground. It was so successful so quickly that in Washington, in the Bush administration, there was a sort of sense of, well, that was pretty easy, wasn't it? You know, uh, we can just knock over a government. Uh, the expectation is democracy will just sort of flourish and you know, maybe the State Department can pick up a few of the pieces. We can move on to Iraq. Um, and at the same time, there's this sort of sense of, well, very, very strongly articulated, you know, you are with us or against us, you know, you're, a ter- you're on the side of, you know, good or evil, moral clarity, um, you know, you're, you're a terrorist or, or you're not. And so Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, who were certainly very closely connected and, re- and remain so, um, but they were conflated. And so there was no sort of possibility of the Afghans doing any kind of negotiations with the Taliban. And so the whole thing at this at this moment, you know, really, I mean, I guess the first week of December 2001, you can see it kind of uh, shift. 
and all the resources went went towards Iraq. All the kind of thinking, the sort of the top, you know, military officers, you know, felt that you know Afghanistan, uh, Iraq was the new game in town, and Afghanistan was on the back burner. So yeah, I mean, all this all this was happening, you know, really very early on in this. I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, you went to Afghanistan last year as part of your research and and met with Uzbek warlords uh, who'd helped lead the war on the Taliban uh, in two thousand and one. Now, uh, obviously, the, the, this is a, a murky world. Many of these figures themselves have been accused of torture and massacres. Um, but but it is interesting that what you find is praise for the CIA and criticism primarily for diplomats and politicians. Um, what you mean from the from the Afghans? From from the Afghans, yeah. yeah. That the, 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 they were kind of essentially very. Their criticism was for the uh, the diplomats and the, and American politicians. Yeah, so you know, Abdul Rashid Dostum, you know, <laughs> General Dostum, sort of notorious warlord. You know, he, uh, you know, sort of famed for switching sides. Um, he'd fought for the Soviets. Uh, against the Mujahideen, you know, which was being backed by the CIA at the time, um, certainly um, implicated in massacres and various atrocities over the years. Um, but, you know, there are no sort of choir boys in Afghanistan. You know, if you're going to be a leader, I mean, I use the term warlord. Um, I mean, the country's been at war, I don't know, at least since 1978. And so to be a leader inside Afghanistan, um, and to command any sort of authority, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to have blood on your hands. And Dostum kind of gloried in this, and I think that was, um, you know, created this reputation which helped him, but was also problematic. And so he was sort of shunned by the U.S. government before 9/11. So David Tyson, the Uzbek-speaking case officer, who was based in Tashkent, he was pushing to to be able to speak to Dostum. He was he was speaking to him through the Uzbek intelligence service, through intermediaries. But there was, but, you know, the, nobody in the US government was actually in contact with Dostum before 9-11. And again, at this sort of turning point, almost um, as soon as Team Alpha was out in December 2001, um, Dostum was a pariah. Uh, he's never been to the United States since. Uh, the State Department wanted nothing to do with him. Large parts of the CIA, um, you know, considered him persona non grata. Um, and so, you know, I interviewed Dostum in Shevagan, which was <laughs> last November. It was all it was surrounded by the Taliban then, you know, which was sort of sobering kind of moment for me. I mean, I had to wait for more than a week for a helicopter to get out of there. Um, but, you know, Dostum was sort of lamenting. Now, listen, you know, he's a controversial and problematic figure. And the idea that, you know, if only we'd sort of allowed Dostum to do whatever he wanted, everything in Afghanistan would have been okay. You know, that's sort of questionable. But he was, yeah, I mean, he was sort of looking back, you know, sort of mournfully really about at this early period when it was it was sort of relatively simple um, that the Americans were there, the Afghans did the fighting, but the CIA, you know, they came in with three million dollars to, you know, to pay him and others and also encourage defections from the Taliban. Um, and it was, um, you know, a very kind of straightforward uh, fight. And then it became, you know, extraordinarily political. And, you know, the big, you know, U.S. government Inc. was involved rather than, you know, a small band of CIA officers and Green Berets who had incredible 
um, sort of uh, latitude to take decisions on the ground. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Team Alpha um, and the Green Berets who, who were with them are sort of very fondly remembered in northern Afghanistan for what they did in, in 2001. Yeah, the I mean the the central argument of the book seems to be that essentially this war in Afghanistan was three months of getting the strategy right, and then nineteen years and nine months of of getting it wrong. Um, in in that context, I wonder what what do you make of the decision by first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration to um, negotiate and then execute a withdrawal. Well, you know, it's a ca- catastrophe, basically, and there's there's a lot of blame to go around. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Team Alpha people, so I'm in close touch with them, you know, the six still living out of the eight. Mike Spann was obviously was killed on November the 25th, 2001. Mark Rassenberger, the medic, um, died on a CIA mission in the Philippines in 2016, but st- st- six still alive. One, Andy, um, first name only, is still serving in a senior position in the CIA. I don't know what he did, um, you know, during the withdrawal, but, you know, his career was very much in, you know, in the paramilitary sphere. So my assumption would be that he was very closely involved in the CIA efforts to get assets out. And I'm told that 30, that 30, the CIA got 32,000 people out, which is all their assets and all their families. The ones who are out have been working sort of, you know, uh, almost every working, uh, every waking hour. And I've been sort of, you know, a little bit part of it because I'm trying to get a translator out. They're just trying to get people out. They're trying to get Afghan allies out. And so they're not focusing too much. You know, they're classic, you know, focusing on the mission um, rather than the the sort of politics and the rearview mirror. I mean, you know, if you look... If you look at every administration, you know, the Bush administration obviously, you know, had it right. I think the principles are right early on. It sh- they shifted towards uh, nation building. Obama, you know, counterinsurgency, 100,000 troops. And, you know, I think sort of for political reasons, he saw it as the sort of the good war, you know, as against the bad war in Iraq, which had been, the, you know, one of the basis of, it, of his, um, of his uh, presidential victory. Um, and then, you know, the, I mean, February 2020, the um, the deal with the Taliban was really a surrender. You know, the, the Afghan government wasn't involved. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think the writing was on the wall at that point. And then Biden, essentially the same, essentially the same position as Trump and clearly a very mismanaged, you know, evacuation operation. And and do you see that as a as a tactical miscalculation, but essentially doing the the right strategic thing, or do you think it's wrong strategically to withdraw as well? I think it's wrong strategically. I mean, I understand uh, American um, sort of ennui, and certainly before um, the collapse of the Ghani government, I think well over seventy percent of people um, Americans thought we should be out. You talk. I mean, right at the beginning, you talked about the forgotten war. I mean, I, I think most Americans forgot it for for about a decade, and now they're very much, you know, more engaged, at least uh, temporarily. Um, listen, there are no. I mean, I'm not going to sort of sit around in rural Virginia in 2021 and say, oh, you know, if only we just done this, everything would have been fine. And if I'd been in charge, you know, um, it would be sort of you know flowers in the streets now. I mean, there are no. 
um, sort of easy solutions in Afghanistan. But I do think that, you know, a residual force of, I mean, Trump had brought it down to 2,500. Before that, it was 5,000. Um, something around 5,000. You know, I don't believe it's sustainable to have 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan sort of indefinitely. But I think about 5,000, a small residual force to sort of, you know, stiffen the spine of the Afghan government and stop it collapsing, providing counterterrorism support. In a way, refer, you know, returning to the principles of these sort of early months. I mean, I think that, I mean, incontrovertibly would have been better than, than uh, what we're seeing now. And, and what about the the question of the Taliban themselves? Obviously, you know the country. You've uh, you've met a, a number of the important uh, kind of leaders in the resistance. I um, I presume that you've spoken to even some members of the Taliban at different points in your uh, career. What what do you think yeah. we can expect from uh, what actually I suppose we have to describe as the new Taliban government? Well, you know the new Taliban, same as the old Taliban. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, certainly they're more sort of technologically savvy and they sort of use WhatsApp and social media. And they've spent 20 years um, sort of observing the West and fighting the West. And I think they've learned about, you know, our sort of uh, weaknesses and foibles. A number of the, them have spent a lot of time in Guantanamo Bay. So I think they sort of have a much more sophisticated understanding of the world and the West than they did in the sort of 1996 to 2001 period. But if you look at that list of sort of 33 government um, positions that were filled, I mean, you know, the Haqqanis, um, extremely closely linked to Al Qaeda. I mean, Mullah Fazl, who's the deputy defense minister, same position he had um, up to 2001, uh, involved in, you know, massacres of Shia Hazaras across northern Afghanistan. I mean, these were the people who, you know, stoned gay men to death, chopped the hands of robbers off, um, shot women with Kalashnikovs in in sports stadiums. And I mean, I think the message from that government that was announced, I think, um, on Tuesday was that we haven't changed. And so we've, you know, we've had this sort of wishful thinking from the West because, you know, we sort of, I mean, in a way, it's back to the original problem. We think everybody's like us. We, th we think the Taliban is going to embrace sort of elements of Western liberalism now when they've just won. Um, I mean, they, you know, have been in their own minds vindicated. So, um, you know, I mean, they may be a little bit less blatant about some of the things they do. I mean, I think they do. They are going to have a problem ruling this country and they do want foreign aid. But I mean, I think it will be a very serious mistake to believe that um, the essence of the Taliban is um, anything other than than what it was 20 years ago. And what what lessons do you think that the great powers will take from this, not just the United States, but but also Russia, which obviously has always had a, a historic interest in Afghanistan, uh, but also, of course, the rising power of China? Well, you know, Afghanistan was the venue for the great game, you know, between the British and the, um, the Russian Empire in, you know, in the 19th century. And you just look at it, on a map, you know, Pakistan, you know, which has been a constant sort of, um, you know, patron of the Taliban and factor throughout these last 20 years. And the head of the ISI was in Kabul the other day, you know, Iran, 
um, and then uh, to, to the um, to the west, and then you know the former Soviet republics, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan in the north, and then that little sliver in in the northwest, um, you know, with a border with China, and you know, you know, it's a vacuum. America is left. I mean, I hope that we will still pay attention, and I, you know, we disengage from Afghanistan at our peril. Um, but you know, there's going to be a big fight for influence. Um, you know, Al Qaeda is still there. I presume, you know, there's there's a strong possibility that large numbers of jihadis around the world will, you know, sort of be, you know, um, boosted by this victory. Will will head towards Afghanistan. So, you know, uh, America likes to sort of declare an end to wars and say we're leaving. It's over. Well, you know, it's not over. Um, uh, it's not over for Afghans. And I think, you know, war will continue. You know, I hope and expect some kind of resistance in Afghanistan to continue. It's, you know, pretty tough times in the Panjshir Valley uh, right now. But, you know, I mean, I think that there's a strong possibility at some point, um, just as happened with Iraq, that, you know, we're going to have to return there, you know, in some form. So the book is First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. It's written by my guest, Toby Harnden, and published by Little Brown. But for now, Toby, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.